I'm Curtis Schaefer. And I'm Martine Halverson-Taylor. And this is Sacred and Profane. Good morning. Good morning. Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not long after sunup, on a typically humid day here in Virginia, a group of 25 or so people gathered in downtown Charlottesville, right in front of the county courthouse. Our colleague, Jelaine Schmidt, was there that day. She's a professor in the Religious Studies Department here at the University of Virginia. And I do a lot of public history projects in the city of Charlottesville, Virginia. If Jelaine sounds a little distant here, that's because we're social distancing. Since we can't meet indoors these days, we reached her at home by phone. But let's get back to the story. I was there at the Bible study, which was led by two activist pastors, Phil Woodson and Isaac Collins. Why are you here so early in the morning? The Spirit has called us here to tell the truth. This statue is an idol to white supremacy. That statue they're gathered in front of is known as Johnny Reb. It's a bronze statue of a soldier with a rifle in his hand, ready for action. On his belt buckle are the initials CSA. That stands for Confederate States of America. And this was one of the first of three Confederate statues to go up in downtown Charlottesville. Johnny Reb's been standing in front of the county courthouse since 1909, paid for with money raised by the local chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. In the decades after the Civil War, hundreds of Confederate statues went up in towns across the United States. Most are in the former Confederacy, but a total of 31 states across America, including California, Washington, and even Illinois, the land of Lincoln, put up some kind of Confederate monument. The soldier in front of the Charlottesville courthouse, it was mass manufactured outside Chicago and sold all across the country. Depending on the town, they just add a belt buckle that read USA instead of CSA. They're kind of a generic image, like a cast bronze G.I. Joe. Besides the belt buckle, there's another detail that stands out. Carved into the granite plinth holding up the statue is a cross formed by the 13 stars of an artfully draped Confederate battle flag. And that cross gets at the heart of what we're going to talk about today. Because as much as these monuments are idols to white supremacy, they're also steeped in Christian tradition. They were placed in public spaces with the full support of white church leaders and congregations. And at that Bible study, Reverend Isaac Collins talked openly with his congregants about those links. We're not used to thinking about these statues in religious terms, and yet when you look at the history of their installation and the like ceremonies that were held at the time, there were pastors there, there were prayers said, God is invoked repeatedly. It's really about a theology, one that's become less explicit in our day. Yeah, I mean, there are literal angels guarding the path of Stonewall Jackson over here. We realize that there are spiritual arguments for why these things should come down, not just political or historical, but spiritual as well. And we felt like as pastors in Charlottesville, we've kind of inherited that legacy and we wanted to respond to it. 
Jelaine, you've been giving tours of the Confederate monuments in downtown Charlottesville for a few years now. Yeah, and I'm not giving the tourism bureau type tour down there. I started giving these tours during the summer of hate, during the uh, summer of 2017, when there were lots of journalists who were coming to town in Charlottesville and wanted to know the background of, you know, why there were so many statues in, in our town and what they stood for. So you had an idea of where to go to explore the religious ideas that lie behind these statues. You, you took us on a tour a few weeks ago to look at yet another Confederate monument in Charlottesville. This one is in a cemetery on the University of Virginia's campus, and it went up even before the statues downtown. Yeah, well, it kind of does escape notice, you know. Uh, for a lot of people, it's just kind of tucked away. If you weren't coming and looking for it, you probably wouldn't see it. We're standing here, and then we've got a, you know, a granite plinth here. It's about 10 feet tall, and then on top of that is a bronze figure of a Confederate soldier, about 8 foot tall. It says, Confederate dead. And then, fate denied them victory, but crowned them with glorious immortality. This is the first Confederate statue that was installed in town. Most of the first Confederate monuments that were installed, and this is all over the South, were put in graveyards. They were objects of memory, uh, memorialization, of mourning. At the dedication ceremony, veterans gathered with the families of soldiers killed in the war. Locals, including faculty from the University of Virginia, attended too. Music was played, wreaths were laid, speeches were read, including a formal dedication by a veteran who'd served alongside Lee. The veterans themselves are, are dying off. So there's a lot of concern, you know, to educate the next generation of, of white Southerners. Before the war, Southern whites were frank about their reasons for creating a new government. Take James Holcomb, a law professor here at UVA. He quit his job at the university in 1861 to advocate for Virginia's secession. The institution of slavery is so interwoven with a whole framework of society and a large portion of our state and constitutes so immense an element of material wealth and political power to the whole commonwealth that its subversion through the operation of any unfriendly policy on the part of the federal government would, of necessity, dry up the very fountains of our public strength, change the whole frame of our civilization, and inflict a mortal wound upon our liberties. And if there is danger to an interest of such importance, serious danger, although remote, there can be no higher duty which any Christian or any patriot owes to his country than to resist it in its first approaches. In the minds of these Confederates, the antebellum South was an ideal Christian society, a benevolent paternalistic hierarchy, and one that was ordained by God. Just as God looked over his children on earth, so slaveholders imposed order on their households. That kind of paternalistic idea of slavery as a Christian institution endured after the war, 
even as veterans and their descendants began to cloak the reasons for secession in more acceptable language. It had never been about slavery at all. Rather, it was about states' rights. Or if slavery was a part of it, it was only because slavery was the most humane option for a people who could not be trusted with their own freedom. Speaking to a reporter from the New York Herald in 1865, Robert E. Lee had this to say, Based on wisdom and Christian principles, you do a gross wrong and injustice to the whole Negro race in setting them free. And it is only this consideration that has led the wisdom, intelligence, and Christianity of the South to support and defend the institution up to this time. So in other words, Lee was insisting that far from being cruel, slavery was a Christian institution in the best sense. Even after the end of slavery, any sort of change to this God-ordained racial hierarchy justified violent opposition. And especially the notion of citizenship and rights for the descendants of enslaved people. At ceremonies held in the shadow of Confederate monuments, there were very pointed calls for Black people to stay in their place. The war brought out in the Southern slaves traits of character that call for recognition their loyalty to master and mistress, their fidelity, watchfulness, and courage were great and most surprising. That came from a 1915 speech a local pastor gave at a Memorial Day ceremony on this very spot in the University of Virginia's Confederate Cemetery. The teachers of the Negro race, if they would find the best possible exemplars for their pupils, should themselves study the character of the Southern slave of the war period and portray the same as clearly as possible. And now, let us bow our heads. And this is at the heart of the Bible study I went to downtown. It was a recognition of the intersection of white supremacy and white Christianity in the South. There's this idea that the Old South was also a more Christian place. And that was something that the men and women who maintained Confederate graveyards and memorials were very clear about from the beginning. Take that pastor who spoke earlier. While loyal to the country as she now is, we will say concerning our beloved Confederacy, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Without disloyalty, you may substitute Confederacy for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, in Christian theology, is the holy city, the center of the world, where God resides, evoking the earthly and the heavenly. Is it this kind of religious language and symbolism to describe the Confederacy that gives these monuments a kind of pernicious traction? Yeah, and particularly that, and then the combination with other aesthetic tropes, like Greek allegorical figures of valor and faith, you know what I mean, that are just kind of completing this neoclassical tableau really lends the power to it. And, you know, many of these gatherings, you know, that took place there occurred with the benediction of these pastors. So as we were leaving the UVA graveyard, Jelaine, you showed us something just outside the wall that goes unmentioned in all of these ceremonies. Yeah, we are outside the, the walls proper, you know, of, of the cemetery here. 
dozens of unmarked graves where the enslaved men, women, and children who worked to build and maintain the university were buried. These black graveyards were regularly raided by uh, so-called resurrectionists, as they were called. And these were people who were hired by the university uh, medical school to procure cadavers and to, to, to transfer them to what's called the anatomical building. You remember that? I mean, the, the Confederates that are buried in their quadrant over there are, are being guarded, as it were, by the Confederate soldier monument that's, you know, on a pedestal, standing guard, standing sentry, making sure that they're at rest, that they're remaining at rest. But meanwhile, over here on the other side of the wall of the cemetery, these graves are being subjected to being robbed, to having the, the bodies disinterred to be dissected by UVA medical students. And effectively, you know, as, as Justin Greenlee has said, you know, that, that uh, people are being enslaved after death. It's a powerful reminder of how these markers get used not only to promote one version of history, but also to suppress others. And exactly, and again, if you consider the fact that the outright majority of residents of the city of Charlottesville and Almaro County between 1820 and 1890, the outright majority were African-American. Until 1865, the majority of residents were enslaved. So I, I see these, these Confederate mines, they're, they're actually doing a lot of work to quash memory. It's a you know, very kind of public-facing assertion of what should be taught to the young, you know, what the public is supposed to remember. And that's why these statues end up not just in religiously symbolic places like cemeteries, but in public spaces, like the Johnny Reb statue in front of the courthouse where we started our story. Even in that more secular space, we can still see how white Christian institutions intersect with white supremacy. In the 1800s, the courthouse served as a meeting place for many Christian denominations. Thomas Jefferson attended services there, calling it the town's common temple. And it was also a place where contracts were filed and estates were settled, and therefore a place to do business. Before the war in Charlottesville, a lot of that business was buying and selling black men, women, and children. That included members of the Gillette, Granger, Hubbard, and Hearn families. 33 of the over 600 people that Jefferson enslaved at Monticello over the course of his life. Three years after Jefferson's death, they were sold to pay his debts, just a few yards from the courthouse where he and other white citizens worshipped. For many years, the only sign of that history was a small brass plaque embedded in the nice brick sidewalk just a few yards from the courthouse and the statue of Johnny Reb. Unless you knew the brass plaque was there, you could miss it entirely. You could walk right over it. Churches, you know, all over the country and especially all over the South have not 
dealt with the legacy of the people who have been in them and uh, and what they've done. And actually, you know, when, when I talk to congregants or, or people that come to the study about that, oftentimes there's, there's a fear, right, of condemning their parents who believed in segregation or their great-grandfather who fought in the Civil War. You know, what do we do when these statues somehow to them, talking about them in this way, this notion that we just have to maintain the past instead of trying to repair the past or improve in the past makes them feel like they're also sort of condemning their family. You know, Christianity is about transformation, and so when we when we feel when we feel as a church that maybe it's best to just kind of let things be, then we're not really practicing the faith that we proclaim. In June 2020, the Bible study met again. It was a very different feeling from the quiet gathering on a Sunday morning the year before. Good evening. This tiny toy bullhorn my wife got me is working out great. This time, the square was full. My name is uh, the Reverend Phil Woodson. I'm the associate pastor at First United Methodist Church. Um, just a few housekeeping issues before we begin. If you're here for Bible Protests study, sparked by the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin have been going on for weeks. I want to announce if you've been out in the streets and if you've been protesting, well done. Make sure you're wearing masks. We've been talking about wearing glasses. And in Virginia, protesters have taken on Confederate statues once again as tangible symbols of white supremacy. Protesters in Richmond have torn down three Confederate statues in the heart of the city, and the governor has promised a multi-story statue of Robert E. Lee will be removed as well. We talked about these idols these statues as idols to white supremacy, but the truth is that when they are gone, the work will not be finished. These statues are the heroes. They tell the story of white supremacy in our community. They are meant to terrorize people that don't look like this, and they are meant to valorize the people that do. White folks, nothing less then our souls is at stake in this fight. Nothing less than our very humanity is on the line. And it starts with embracing Christ's call to completely transform the way this society is built. And it is time for our community to imagine the anger of our black brothers and sisters and join them in the call to defund the police and dismantle our existing criminal justice system. Jelaine, as we record this, so much is happening in the state of Virginia and in Charlottesville with the statues. Can you tell us what's happening right now? Yeah, well, in Richmond, these statues are coming down uh, almost on a daily basis, it seems. The mayor of Richmond, LeVar Stoney, has declared that these statues constitute a public safety hazard. So he has directed they be taken down. And so just an hour ago, they took down the Soldier and Sailor Monument. Richmond's landscape is changing very quickly, right before the residents' eyes. It's different here in Charlottesville, where the two big statues of Generals Lee and, and Jackson are still standing because there is a injunction. And the city has filed a motion with the Supreme Court to 
have that injunction dissolved. And the county uh, has just announced their process is moving forward to consider what to do with Johnny Reb. So there are, you know, there are definite steps that are being taken in both the city and the county uh, toward removal of our local statues, but it's not anywhere uh, with the same pace as what is going on in Richmond. The statues may be symbolic, but they're invested with intense emotional energy, and they have been for the entire time that they've been standing. What do you think is going to happen with that emotional energy uh, when they're gone? Wow, that's a really good question, because already we're kind of in this interim time where um, we're waiting. We're waiting, you know, as we're recording this in the summer of 2020, you know, we're looking forward to, you know, perhaps September, October, that these, you know, they're finally these statues be removed. What's happening right now is there are actually armed neo-Confederates that are in our parks every night at the Lee statue and at the Jackson statue, in, in their words, guarding the statues, you know, um, and sometimes accosting passersby and this sort of thing. So where does that energy go? Um, well, right now, you know, we're, we're seeing people, you know, kind of show up with, uh, you know, that are kind of instilling some fear. You know, they have their own fear and turmoil about what they see as their their history being taken away, and they are projecting that outward, you know, onto the community, onto passersby in, in the parks. Hopefully, you know, a, kind of a lid will be kept on that, move forward with removal. I mean, in Richmond, uh, there hasn't been people showing up with arms, you know, to oppose the, the workers who are taking down the statues, and hopefully that'll be the case here in Charlottesville. If we've been talking about these monuments as symbols of white supremacy intersecting with Christianity. What is the challenge that is being meted out to Christianity with the removal of these symbols? You know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about how, relatively speaking, it's easy to take down a statue. But what's difficult is to take down these systems of white supremacy that have been put in place brick by brick, you know, over the decades. What would it mean to dismantle Systems of oppression, say, in, you know, education, in healthcare, in the criminal justice system. That's, that's the real work that needs to happen. I'm concerned that there might be a sense of that taking down these statues means that the work is done when really it's just beginning. That's just the, the, the statues were a very tangible, uh, you know, material marker of white supremacy, but we still need to dig into the systemic system of white supremacy. Why are you here so late in the evening? The spirit has called us here to tell the truth. This statue is an idol to white supremacy. We have been gathered to reckon with the full history of Charlottesville's past. I do not believe you. Can you talk about this like you believe it? Let me hear it again. This is our community. And we do have power. We have a power to Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Our program manager is Ashley Duffalo. Kelly Jones is the lab's editor. Today's story was brought to us by Jelaine Schmidt. 
special thanks to the Reverend Phil Woodson and the Reverend Isaac Collins. Thanks also to Mary Garner McGee. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find out more about our work at religionlab.virginia.edu or by following us on Twitter at The Religion Lab. If you're curious about Charlottesville's Confederate monuments, head to thesemonuments.org for a recording of a tour offered by Dr. Andrea Douglas and our guest, Chelaine Schmidt. If you like the show, head over to iTunes or the platform of your choice to rate and review us. This is our last episode of the season, but we'll be back this fall with an episode that explores how Charlottesville is creating a new kind of public memory here in Court Square and across the city. Stay tuned. <laughs>